In this episode of Data Framed, a Data Camp podcast, we'll be looking at how data science is impacting epidemiology. I'll be speaking with Mael Salmon, a data scientist who has worked in public health, both in infectious disease and environmental epidemiology. We'll be talking about the role of data science, statistics, and data management in researching the health effects of air pollution and urbanization. In the process, we'll dive into the continual need for open-source toolbox development, open data, knowledge organization, and diversity in this emerging discipline. I'm Hugo Baun-Anderson, a data scientist at DataCamp, and this is DataFrame. Welcome to DataFrame a weekly data camp podcast exploring what data science looks like on the ground for working data scientists and what problems data science can solve. I'm your host, Hugo Bown anderson You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bown, and you can also follow DataCamp at DataCamp. You can find all of our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast. Hey, Mael, welcome to Data Framed. Hi, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited to be delving into the role of data science in epidemiology, thinking about the R stats community, the role that the R community plays in data science in general today with you. But first, I'd like to find out a bit about you. How did you get into data science originally? Well, I've always liked maths, but I was really interested into biology applications of maths, so that's why I started out as a biology major. And I really thought I would be, you know, a lab person. But then... I did some lab work and I hated it. So I realized I, I needed to spend more time in front of a computer. And that's how I discovered epidemiology, which is a way to look at life sciences application, use a lot of math and not do lab work. When you were doing biology, you realized that, you know, either pipetting or spending time in the lab wasn't wasn't what you in, enjoyed the most. So you started programming and doing data analysis and that type of stuff? Yeah, exactly. And, and this applied to epidemiology. And after Doing that, like uh, after doing my master's in um, public health, I looked for a PhD and I thought it would be an epidemiology PhD. And it was actually a PhD in statistics, which I hadn't done a lot before because I, I had mostly used modeling, mathematical modeling uh, in my internships and research projects. I was like curious about statistics and it actually worked well. So I got my PhD and after that, I looked for new positions and the one I was really interested in and that I got was a data manager and statistician position. I wasn't a data manager at all, but that's when I learned the data management part and I guess statistics, data management, that's when I became a data scientist for real. That's cool because I don't know if you know much about um, where I came from, but I did my postdoc in a cell biology lab. My background's in pure math, started doing applied math. And uh, I was hired as a postdoc ostensibly to to do applied math, mathematical modeling. But that's where I got there and realized I needed to start doing a lot of data analysis, a lot of statistics. Uh, and that's when I learned R and Python as, as well formally. So that's there's a similar trajectory there. So you didn't originally think of yourself as, as a data scientist, though, right? No, I didn't. I thought of myself as a statistician because I, worked, I had worked so hard to get my PhD in statistics, you know, so getting this statistician title was important for me. But when I did a lot of data wrangling and for Women's uh, International Day, David Robinson sent out this tweet where, well, a series of tweets where he, he was like kind of making an advertisement for women in data science and statistics. And he put my name in a tweet about data scientists, which was first like, a, I was very happy and thankful for that, but also very surprised. And that's the first time I realized, oh yes, I'm a data scientist. 
and actually you have some you have a lot in common common with dave um and and one thing i admire about both of you is how much you like to communicate around data science and and to blog so maybe you can tell us a bit about that yeah i think i started blogging because i i had all these small projects i had done for fun like but there were github repos and i in some cases i had tweeted visualizations but i had never taken the time to really explain how I had done these things. And I thought it would be great to blog about it, to take these old projects and just put them in into blog posts. And actually, I was very inspired by what Dave did and also what Julia Silji did as our bloggers. So I really wanted to have fun blogs as they do. So they were my inspiration. So let's let's talk about epidemiology. What What is epidemiology? Well, it's a lot of, of things. So... Officially, it's when you study the determinants of disease, so what causes disease and how these determinants and how disease are distributed in a population. So it's a science, but it's a very applied one because the goal of doing all these studies is to control disease, to, inc- to improve the health of a population. And this population may be a human population, animal population, plant population. So you're really trying to improve the health of a living thing, but not necessarily humans. So, Mael, there are different types of epidemiology, for example, infectious disease epidemiology, to my understanding, versus non-infectious disease epidemiology. Can, can you speak to this distinction? Yeah, exactly. So sometimes when people say epidemiology, they only think of the movie Contagion. So this is infectious disease epidemiology. So you're looking at, I don't Ebola, Salmonella, this kind of disease. But there, are all, there is also another kind of epidemiology, which is looking at, for instance, cardiovascular disease, which is definitely not infectious, but which still need to be studied. So when you do epidemiology, you might be doing any of these things. And well, you might be doing this for humans or not for humans. So it's a very varied field. Yeah. And I suppose obesity is another example, right? Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was first told it's a boring issue. When I started being interested in epidemiology, I needed to talk with a professor at my university that was in charge of helping me with my curriculum. And when I told this person about epidemiology, this person told me, oh, yes, do that, but don't do epidemiology of obesity because it's a boring issue. So that's what this person told me. I was quite shocked. So it's not true. There is no boring issue in epidemiology at all. There is nothing we've completely figured out. And if you're not interested in in obesity, that's fine because there are a lot of other things to study. <laughs> yeah, and so something I'm I'm not quite sure if, if if I'm correct or not, but my understanding is even with non-infectious epidemiology, there are there can be network effects. For example, with obesity, if you're in a social group with a, a certain number of obese people, there's a higher pr- probability of you you being obese. Yeah, exactly. So epidemiology is a very interesting field because it's not only about biology. It's also about social factors, for instance, that can uh, influence your health. So it's very varied in that sense. And it, it seems like it would be a very uh, motivating place place to work because you're doing something to improve improve people or, or other organisms' health, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what I think. I think it's it's very motivating because you're doing something good or you're trying to at least to improve the health of I mean, global health, health of humans and health of animals. So it, it's very motivating in that sense. So what are the most interesting challenges in, in epidemiology today in, in the modern landscape of epidemiology? I think it's an interesting question because I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure any challenge is more interesting than another. But something that I really like to mention is that you can actually prioritize which 
research needs you're going to to answer. There is this a global project called Global Burden of Disease. So they're collecting data, modeling when data, well, modeling to do statistical analysis, but also modeling when data is not enough, when data is too scarce. And what these people are doing is making a list of the most important causes of mortality, for instance. So right now, you can say, for instance, if malaria is an important cause of mortality and if its effect is decreasing or increasing, so using global burden of disease data, you could actually choose an epidemiology project that's, that seems more crucial because it affects more people or because it's increasing. Great. And is, is this all open data that they have? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure whether the raw data is open, but they have a, a fantastic website where you can play with data visualization. So they're doing great work at communicating their findings. So in scientific journals, but also on this website uh, with, with visualization, with um, interactive tools where you can really visualize and play with the data to, to really understand their finding for yourself. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think the role of uh, interactive visualization, interactive data visualization is becoming more and more exciting. Yeah, and I, actually, I'm, I use a lot of interactive visualization myself. I mean, I don't play with them a lot, but I remember someone telling me about the Global Burn of Disease Projects on epidemiologists and telling me, and what I really like about them is this and showing me an interactive visualization. So I think they, they've really chosen a, a great way to communicate what they do. So what are some other challenges in epidemiology that, that you currently find find interesting or you're thinking about? Well, so I, I say that the global burden of disease helps you see what are the most important causes of mortality and disease. And if you compare that with existing research with results that have already been published, you can see that there is sometimes a gap. So if we look at air pollution, at the effect of air pollution, for instance, so most research has happened in high-income countries, but most exposure and, well, most people live currently in uh, low- and middle-income countries. So I've worked for a research project called CHAI. This means cardiovascular health effect of air pollution in Telangana, India. And this is one of the research projects currently that aims at bridging the gap between existing research and research need we have in the field of air pollution. Amazing. And so does that involve collecting more data or what type of what type of things is Chai doing to, to, to bridge these gaps? So Chai has been collecting a lot of data because in a place like India, so it's not like if you're looking at air pollution in, say, the US, you can partly rely on data collected by the EPA, which you cannot really do uh, in India because there are less monitors. So it, data collection is very scarce and not necessarily open. And because Chai is happening in a rural area, there was no air pollution monitor for ambient air pollution. So in the so Chai set up ambient air quality monitors. And on top of that, there was a lot of data collection from people. So having them wear, for instance, personal air pollution monitors, having them fill questionnaires. So a lot of data was collected from the environment and from people themselves. And so data collection is one thing, but then I suppose data management is, is a huge challenge um, when we're collecting so much data. Yeah. So as you can imagine, it's a lot of data. So you will necessarily have a few mistakes and a few things that don't really correspond to one another. So it was important to clean this data. So for instance, we were using a very cool personal air pollution monitor, which was small. 
and which gave you one uh, really regular measures of a pe person exposure to small particles in the air. So this is a cool device, but it's actually not uh, completely production ready. So, so it had a lot of issues in the data. So we had to spend, for instance, a lot of time looking at this at this data and cleaning it before using it. So this project um, in particular was in in, an, in a rural area. You said, what's the role of, of urbanization in thinking about uh, epidemiology? So because of urbanization, or so a lot of environmental factors are changing into people's lives. So. This happens in India, but it, this happens in other countries. A lot of people are living in cities. So I'm going to branch out from Chai and mention another project that I've worked for, which was looking at how city infrastructure might change people's health. So the way your city is organized will influence the way you go to work, for instance, or the way you're commuting. And this project was looking at the influence of putting more cycle paths in your city and health. So it was very interesting because it's it, we had to model the influence of the length of bike paths you had in a city, how this influenced the number of people that go to work on a bike, with public transport, in a car, and how this in turn influenced health. That's incredible. That's it's such a diverse set of tools and, and ideas and, and concepts. I mean, you have city planning there, you have health, and you have data science, data management, and, and statistics all con converging there. That must be a really uh, exciting type of project to work on. Yeah, exactly. And it also means that you're never, you'd never feel completely expert in any of these things, but you're learning a lot, and, and that's why it makes it so motivating. Yeah, and that's something people, data, working data scientists always say to aspiring data scientists is you need to be willing and have a strong desire to be learning constantly because you'll be working in domains which are, which are challenging you that you may not have, have so much experience in as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Like when I started working for Chai, I never uh, done data management, so a really strong quality you need to have as a data scientist, the willingness to learn, but also the capacity to know where to look for resources to do things right or to learn how to do them right. Yeah. In general, how did data science and statistics help to solve challenges in, in epidemiology? Well, epidemiology is a, a really like a evidence-based field. So when city managers or like public health people make decisions, so often they will use evidence from epidemiology and because of that epidemiology relies on a lot of data analysis and statistical statistical work. So that's what statisticians and data scientists are doing in epidemiology. Something that's interesting, if you look at statisticians, they like to develop fancy methods for, the, for doing things and then you have epidemiologists having their issue. An important point uh, that we're really make statisticians make a difference in epidemiology is when they actually publish their work as a soft as a software as something that epidemiology can use. So I think an important part of the work of data science in epidemiology is providing software tools for epidemiologists to then use. Yeah, so that would involve not just publishing a result about some convergence property in a statistical paper with one use case, but actually getting open source code out there in the real world and hopefully getting a bunch of users trying it on a variety of projects, right? Yeah, exactly. And actually, when you're writing such a paper, like a methods paper, you actually write code because you're 
you're testing your method for yourself or an, on a simulated data set, on a real world data set. So you have code somewhere on a computer. The real effort you need to make is then documenting this code. And like, for instance, if you think of R, putting into a package, documenting it and testing it. So that's, and this part is crucial, but it's not uh, rewarded a lot in the academic system. But if this doesn't happen, your methods won't be used by real world people and won't make any difference for epidemiology. And so actually in your in your thesis, you have a great quotation which which speaks to this, right? Oh yeah, like I was actually actually asked by my supervisor during the last week of my thesis writing to add a quote at the end of my thesis, and I, I actually panicked because I had no idea what to write. You know, I wasn't in a time to be inspired. I was really stressed by writing my thesis, but then I thought of one of my library statisticians, we who sadly died this year. Hans Rosling, so he is a Swedish statistician, and he said, "Let my data set change your mindset." So that's a but it's cool because he's using a lot of data to show pe to well he, he was using a lot of data to show people how the world was which is different from what so from our prejudices when we don't think with data and what i said is that having this statistical tool was a different version of this quote so i said let my tool set change your mindset about your data set so let me show you everything you can do with your data if we just apply this method. So your data is more valuable than you think if we use these tools. That's amazing. So you altered, let my data set change your mindset to let my tool set change your mindset about your data set. I love it. It's now time for a segment called Blog Post of the Week with Data Camp Curriculum Lead, Spencer Boucher. So Spencer, you're here today to talk about a blog post that you read this week and loved. Yes. This week, I've got a blog post called Project Oriented Workflow by Jenny Bryant. Jenny's a software engineer at our studio and a professor at the University of British Columbia. We'll include a link to this in the show notes. What's the post about? Well, so when Jenny gave a talk at an R conference in New Zealand on the topic of using R efficiently, two of her slides in particular generated a lot of heated discussion. So much so, in fact, that today's blog post of the week was born. The crux of Jenny's post is essentially a call for analysts to clearly delineate workflow from product in their analyses. So how does Jenny draw the distinction between workflow and product? Okay, your workflow incorporates all of your personal preferences when doing data science. So that's your text editor, home directory, any convenience functions that you like to use in your interactive console, etc. The product, on the other hand, is the data and analysis itself including everything necessary for anyone else to run your analysis and get the same result. So how can workflow and product get mixed up? Okay, so Jenny works in R, so I'll use her R examples. But the same ideas apply to Python and any other language that you use for data analysis. One really common example is changing your working directory explicitly in your scripts. This may work fine on your computer, but it will single-handedly cause your script to fail anywhere else. And what's another example? Sure. Although code in your R profile is a great way to customize your working environment, you shouldn't put things there that affect the behavior of the code in your script. So for example, changing the number of rows of output when you print a data frame in your interactive console, that's fine. But changing the way R handles NAs or factor variables by default in your R profile will cause errors or even worse, inconsistent results. So why is this a big deal and why should we care? 
Well, ultimately, it all boils down to reproducibility. Most of us have experienced the pain of receiving an analysis from a data scientist that didn't properly separate workflow from product. And if you haven't, you will someday. Don't be that person. If you follow the golden rule of separating workflow and product, your analyses will be more accessible to others, meaning better feedback from coworkers for you and more exposure for whatever your awesome side project is. So how, when doing analyses, can our listeners out there make sure that they've properly separated workflow and product? Here's a couple of Jenny's recommendations. Don't use a single R process across all of your analyses. Keep each analysis as a separate project with its own R process. Also, periodically run your script in a fresh R process from scratch, just to make sure it's in a fully runnable state. So definitely go check out Jenny's blog post in the show notes. You'll be able to implement her suggestions in probably just a few minutes. Your life will get easier overnight, and your analyses will be more shareable for the rest of your career. Thanks, Spencer, for sharing your blog post of the week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Time to get straight back into our chat with Mael. And so I, I, I want to jump back into talking about ep- epidemiology, but actually before that, uh, because I know you're so passionate about tools and, and, and software development for uh, practical statistical data science epidemiology projects, I thought maybe you could speak to, to uh, your role in, in, in our OpenSci, for example. Oh, yeah. So our OpenSci is a community of researchers and developers uh, that provide tools for open science and reproducibility. And I got involved in that committee when I, so, well, like, I think two years ago now. So part of the tools that our OpenSight has are developed by staff, but another part of his tools, a big part of them, are developed by community that submit their R packages to our OpenSight. And our OpenSight ensure a good quality of software by having an onboarding process. So when you want your package to become part of our OpenSight, you need to have it onboarded and what what happens is an open and transparent review of your code and documentation by two independent reviewers. So all of this happens on GitHub using guidelines. So what I did two years ago was submitting my package and I wasn't too sure what to expect and what happened was a very friendly and helpful review of my package and I got more and more involved and I'm now a co-editor for onboarding. Yeah, and so... I help ensuring this process uh, goes well and we're, we really ensure the quality of software in, in our OpenSci suite of tools. That's incredible. And I think it actually fills, well, clearly it fills such a, a huge gap that's left open, you know, by the, the world of scientific publishing and scientific journals, right? I mean, essentially one way of viewing s- some of the work at our OpenSci is it's a, it's a peer review process, right? Similarly for scientific results that come, come out in journals, this is uh, – a peer review process for for software to help scientists uh, do do their job. Yeah, exactly, and and it really increases the focus on on your software quality. So when you publish a paper as a statistician, no one is going to look at your code. I mean, most often. So maybe you have a huge mistake in there, and no no one is ever going to find it. And having software review is a way to prevent this problem from happening. So. Our OpenSci is part of the solution to the problem, but of course there should be more software review in general. And interestingly, at our OpenSci, we have partnership with two scientific journals because when you submit your package to our OpenSci, you're not actually 
publishing it as an academic, but because of his um, partnership with the Journal of Open Science Software, a method in ecology and evolution, you can actually have your software reviewed and get like a DOI, you know, something that you can uh, put on your academic CV and that's more valued in the current system. And you recently wrote a, a blog post about uh, writing R packages. Yeah, so I was invited uh, at an ecology hackathon to give my top tips for developing software packages that are high quality and user-friendly, which is a bit daunting. And there are a lot of good resources for doing that out there. So my blog post is a summary of all these tools that I know, that I've used, all these resources, like books and blog posts that one can read to improve uh, their software writing. And I think it's important to have such summaries, but also I was asked to give my top tips, which surprised me because I don't feel like a, an expert. Like two years ago, I submitted my first package and I, I really hope that having such things like my blog post hardware help people finding resources to build their skills. Because I, I think that if I was able to learn uh, all these things or part of these things in, in two years, then a lot of people would not think they're able to actually able to learn more about software quality. And and this speaks to a more general notion of of knowledge organization as well, which I know you're you're passionate about when thinking about the role of statistics and data science in epidemiology, ecology, air pollution, insurance, maths, whatever it is. I, I know that the idea of organizing knowledge is something you think a lot about. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so as a data scientist, often as a statistician, you will be the person that will formulate the issue someone has, like an applied person, in mathematical terms. So that like you will make it more abstract and look, uh, you will get a formula, a model, whatever, which is a way you will find resources from other fields, from, I don't know, pure mathematics, pure statistics to solve the issue. For instance, what happened to me during my PhD thesis, I had... Uh, I was seeing something in my data with the distributions I was using and my use case was reporting delays. So the fact that when someone gets sick with, say, salmonella, the National Public Health Institute doesn't know of it right away. So there is a time, like there is a delay between this person getting sick and their case being reported. So this is one use case. And I had this distributional issue, this statistical issue. I was seeing something. I needed a theorem and a proof of a theorem. And I needed to Google a long time because I was using the keywords for my epidemiology field. And then after a while, I found exactly the solution to my issue, but in insurance mathematics and in a, actually in German book. So that was really, uh, I was really lucky to find that. And I guess that's why I mean by knowledge organization. So because sometimes different fields use different keywords. People might be doing exactly the same thing, the same statistical thing, and not knowing that this issue has been solved elsewhere. So as a statistician, you need to formulate the question in statistical term, and also you need to be able to branch out a bit and look in other fields to see what has been done. Yeah, and so as a community, how, how can we, a community of data scientists, statisticians, work towards better uh, knowledge organization? I guess an important thing is that we have this community, as you say, and there is a single data science community. Like there is not an epidemiology data science community or insurance mathematics data science community. So people, because people talk to each other and and they should do a lot of that, then they can see this 
parallel things. So we really need to uh, think of data scientists as a role and to talk to each other in this global community, no matter the field where we apply data science. And I'm actually really glad that you you mentioned keywords and, and search engines and, and, and this type of stuff, because this is another piece of advice I always give to people um, starting out in data science is search engines will be your best friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I did a I did a live coding session recently. It was on Facebook Live, actually, where there was a pandas function I just couldn't couldn't figure out. And I spent, it was actually relatively awkward in, in the end because it took me like six or seven minutes to to get there. And I wasn't sure I'd be able to finish the project. And in the end, the response was, Hugo, that was some of the most valuable stuff, seeing you really like freak out <laughs> in, in a search engine because that's the type of stuff we'll, we'll need to do when we work as data scientists. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I was actually certified as a data capital instructor this year. So I, I followed this training and that's, uh, as part of the carpentry instructor training, they, they tell you that it's actually great if you do a mistake in front of the students, you shouldn't hide it. You should uh, really um, embrace it and show them how you solve mistakes when you do one, how you solve a bug. So speaking of how the ins and outs and inner workings of data science in, in, in your work, what type of uh, data science or statistical tools did you find interesting in your bike paths project? So what happened with this backpass project? So that's what not um, my main project work. What happened is that I had this colleague who was working on cities infrastructure, and she had data from six cities in Europe, and she has the le- she had the length of cycle path in these six cities, and she was a bit unsure how to use them because cities define cycle infrastructure in different ways. Like you could have one city saying, "Oh, this road is safe," so this is cycle infrastructure, but it's not dedicated cycle infrastructure. So she asked me, do you think we could use OpenStreetMap data to solve this issue? And I said, oh, sure. So I, so it was a, a fun challenge. So there are tools for getting OpenStreetMap data and OpenStreetMap as labels for the de- dedicated uh, cycle path. So this happened for six cities. And once you've written the code for six cities, as you know, you can scale this codes for any number of cities you want. You just need to change name of the cities. So what started as a as this question for six cities ended up by our getting data for more than 100 city, cities in Europe. So really increasing the quality of uh, the modeling in, in that project. So I guess the technique in that work was mostly data wrangling and data downloading from Open street map. Yeah, and this speaks to a point that we've has come up a couple of times in our conversation now. So it's worth uh, uh, focusing on for, for a second. This idea of open data and how relevant and important and, and useful it is. What's what's your take on open data? Well, so for instance, in that project, we loved open data. Without open data, we wouldn't have got all this psychopath data, and we also got a database that exists of the percentage of people in a lot of cities in Europe that go that commute that do their trips on a bike or in public transport. So these data exist. And without this data, it would have been more much more difficult to do health impact assessment of single cycle infrastructure. If you think of air quality, which was so important to me uh, when working on Chai and which is still very important to me, it's we, we need to air quality data to assess the effect that it has on health and the effect of different measures. But it's actually very hard to get air quality data in many parts of the world. And it's it's more complicated than we might think. So if a city has a website with the current value of ozone, 
So it happens sometimes that you have such a website, so you get the current value, but you never get the past value. So values disappear over time. And what I discovered uh, when working on Chai is a very cool initiative by um, Krista Azenkov and Joel Flasher. So these two people developed a platform called OpenAQ that saves all this data from many websites in the world and make them available for everyone to use. So these values don't disappear of a time anymore, for instance. That's awesome. And OpenAQ has all its data available. But my understanding is even on top of that, they've got software, right? They've got an R package. Yeah, so that's my contribution, my small contribution to Vermark was writing an R package to get to data. So that's so they have an API, so uh, so they make the data really easy to access after writing all the adapters from official website and data website. And so I wrote this R package so that anyone can get this data in, in, in R without knowing anything about API queries. What type of techniques are, are, are most important when, when thinking about this type of data? I mean, you've got geospatial data, time series. Are you interested in prediction? What, what, what type of techniques do you use when, when working on this? Uh, you mean on air quality? Yeah, air, air quality, epidemiology, the type of stuff you, you've been working on. Yeah, so my impression is that often we, we have not been using fancy techniques, but what is taking the most time is thinking of our to communicate uncertainty to people, to colleagues, in papers, because it's so, such a, a complex notion, an important notion to communicate, so not, not, not giving a single number when you're estimating something, but also giving confidence intervals or prediction intervals, and how do you explain them? So that's a really important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that, you know, in, in, in the media when presented with job reports or polling and, and this type of stuff, it's commonly a lot of these numbers are reported as co- concrete numbers that are taken at face value as opposed to the news being reported. This is a number, but this is how certain or uncertain we are uh, about it, which it would be great to, to, to see that type of stuff more and more, I think. Yeah, and I'm thinking of, of an example that's not related to epidemiology, but I've seen uh, recently, I don't remember where, but where they said that, you know, when you get a review on Amazon, you should trust a review that have the most, that, that have been read, written by more people in total than the reviews that have only like, I don't know, five opinions. That is a great example. I, I mean, that's in, in essence, we're talking about sample size there, right? So if you've got a few reviews, you can't really be certain of how good good the product is. Whereas if you've got 5,000 to 10,000 reviews, you, you can. Very cool. So we, we've touched on this idea of data management, which of course is becoming increasingly I- important as we get more and more data, data from the world. Maybe you can speak about some of the work you've done in, 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 in data management, particularly on Chai. Yeah, so one one thing that was important was, well, of course, data cleaning and building uh, an SQL database. But one thing that was important was doc- documenting the database. Like, now I've left this project and people will use the data. And in a few years from now, most of the experts from the project will have left. So are people going to be able to use this database? So you need to document that. And because it was the first time I was documenting such a big database, I I had to look for ways to do that. And the best way to document database nowadays is to use metadata, which is data about data, following a standard. And what, what I used for Chai was EML, the ecological metadata language, but actually also applicable to other fields. So it's a set of XML standards. So this sounds very, well, this sounded very scary to me in any case. But when you use such a standard, 
you can because it's machine readable, you can compare it to the standard and validate it. So say this standard needs units, so you will need to document units. And this standard needs this thing, you will need to add it. For me, it was very good to find such a solution to document data because I was really afraid to forget something because it was the first time I wasn't sure what to put in the documentation. And using a standard, you're completely sure, well, or mostly sure that you've documented everything that should be documented and in a, a, a good way. And because it's machine readable, we can hope that in a few years, if someone has data from another epidemiology project somewhere else, it will be easier for a researcher to merge the data sets and to use them in a meta-analysis because the documentation is machine-readable and similar in both projects. What type of problems would occur if if you hadn't done this? Huh. Uh, well, I imagine that I could have forgotten some important things. Like if, if you don't document units, your numbers become useless uh, a few years from now. And I guess that's one of the most important issues. And if I think of the first database I ever documented, like a long time ago, I I remember writing a Word notebook. So I hope, I think I had saved as PDF, but maybe maybe I could have forgotten to do that. So if your documentation is in such a proprietary format, you could think that maybe sometime like a long time from now, people won't be able to open it. Otherwise, with an XML this won't happen. It will. It's like like a text file. You can still open it and read it. Yeah, the idea of units is really interesting. I'm going to get this story completely wrong, so I'll just mention it very briefly. Greg Wilson, a, a colleague of mine who who you know, who um created the 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 carpentry software software carpentry originally. He has a story of a data analysis project where there was one feature called temperature, and it wasn't marked whether it was in Celsius or Fahrenheit, and it was from the Antarctic or something like that. So it was around the range in which Celsius and Fahrenheit. <laughs> Um, co- coexist or they're, they're the same. And what they uh, had to do in the end was trace back where the ship, where the results were taken, um, had had left from uh, because the port where the ship leaves uh, will tell you what uh, units were actually used, what scale was actually used, something something incredible like that. So I think that example s- speaks to exactly what, what we're talking about. Yeah, that's funny that you should mention that because we had a monitors that output uh, whose output was also a temperature, like in chai, but without units. But there was another variable that you got that was uh, units. So we have such a table with numbers that are temperature and another column, if you, if you wish, in this data set is our units. So because units are not the same for every line. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that you you hinted at was uh, data management being essential to having uh, reproducible workflows and reproducible uh, results downstream as well. Yeah, and I also think data management itself can be reproducible. So everything I've done, things data was done with an R script. So I I did nothing by hand. Like I even, you know, at some points I corrected typos. And I had a lot of RG sub comments for correcting all the typos because I really didn't want to open the, the file and correct the typo my, uh, typos myself. So this way, even the data management is reproducible. So how we got from the raw data to the corrected data that we, we that we use for further analysis is reproducible, and which is great because if at one point we're surprised by what by one value, we can probably trace the mistake back or trace origin of the problem back to where it came from. 
Now it's time for a segment called Stack Overflow Diaries with Data Camp Curriculum Lead, Kara Wu. Hey, Kara. Hey, Hugo. I've got a really fun installment of Stack Overflow Diaries for you today. I am pumped for this. What question are you going to tell us about? The question comes from the Statistics Stack Exchange site, and user Kevin Kim wants to know how to understand the drawbacks of k-means clustering. I'll post a link in the show notes and definitely encourage people to read the answers to this one. Can you tell us a bit about k-means clustering, just to set the scene? Absolutely. K-means clustering is a way to divide up data into a given number of groups so that each data point belongs to the group with the nearest mean value. So for an example, say you had a data set of the weights and heights of some babies and adults, but the data isn't labeled, so you don't know which are babies and which are adults. If you plotted this data on a scatter plot, there would be two fairly distinct clusters of data points, and k-means is a way to automatically group data into these clusters. That's a great example. So what was Kevin Kim's question? I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. Kevin Kim says that the drawbacks they've read about k-means clustering are that it essentially assumes that clusters are spherical and roughly the same size. However, Kevin's understanding of k-means is that no matter what, it will produce clusters that minimize the sum of squared errors, so they don't understand the link between this and the assumptions described. That is a great question, and I'm looking forward to the answer. Part of the reason I chose this question is that it features a truly stellar answer from Dave Robinson. By generating and plotting some data, he demonstrates how minimizing the sum of squared error does not necessarily yield the most natural clusters. In the first case, he shows a scatter plot of data with two clusters. One cluster is concentrated in the center of the plot, and then there's a ring of data points around it. To the human eye, these are clearly two concentric clusters of data. But as Dave demonstrates, k-means clustering splits them right down the middle of the plot instead. In another example, he shows data that to the human eye clearly form three clusters with different numbers of points, but k-means ends up splitting the largest cluster into two. And another user, Anonymous, expanded on Dave's answer and pointed out that k-means will also create clusters even on data points that are totally uniform. I'm a huge fan of showing these types of principles at work via example. So, to reiterate, k-means will always minimize the sum of squared errors, but the point is that there are data sets in which you don't want to do this in order to cluster them, right? Exactly, Hugo. Although Dave shows cases where k-means quote-unquote fails, as he points out, these failures reflect the assumptions of the algorithm that allow it to succeed in the kinds of cases it's designed for. I'm going to quote Dave because he says it so well. Assumptions are where your power comes from. When Netflix recommends movies to you, it's assuming that if you like one movie, you'll like similar ones and vice versa. You can't make a recommendation algorithm without making some assumptions about users' tastes, just like you can't make a clustering algorithm without making some assumptions about the nature of those clusters. Thanks, Kara. If you enjoyed that, listener, be sure to check in for the next episode of Data Framed. Our guest will be none other than Dave Robinson himself, here to talk about citizen data science. Thanks, Kara, once again, for reading us a page from your Stack Overflow diary. Of course, Hugo, and chat next time. Let's now jump back into our interview with Mael Salmon. Something we've, we've mentioned in passing is uh, the idea of community in, in data science. And, and you're part of the RStats community, which seems like a really, it's a really wonderfully welcoming, open community for, for the most part. Um, can you speak to the idea of community and how you've felt your work has developed? 
Yeah, so I, I, I've always felt very welcome in the Rock community. So I think I got on Twitter roughly at the same time that I started doing data management and reading things on Twitter, asking questions. So be, before, when I was working on my PhD, I was on my own. But then I started discovering uh, this whole community. So it's welcoming, but uh, I think we, we could do better. So if... So right now the 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 community is not as as diverse as it could be. So we're probably missing talents from some part of the world. We're probably missing talents from women. So there are uh, currently some initiatives in the art community helping to increase diversity and to not miss these talents, and also to make the community welcoming for everyone, even the people that had bad experiences before. So they very well they feel they they can take part in this. In this community, what what types of initiatives are you talking about? Yeah, so there is one from the Art Foundation called Forward. So Forward starting uh, started out as being a task force from the Art Foundation for Women, and then it branched out, and it's now an initiative for for women, but also for people, for instance, for parts of the world that are often not represented in the art community. And they have uh, a lot of actions, one of them being surveying people after user conferences to get a better idea of our experience and of the characteristics of people taking part in user conferences. And they also gave scholarships for users this year. So some people that probably couldn't have come to Brussels could come. And when they did come, thanks to their scholarship, they could also take advantage of a conference buddy system. So Think uh, like you can be at a conference and not meet anyone because it's very hard to start speaking to people if you don't know any person. So the conference buddy idea was to have a first even for the scholarships holders to meet people. The conference that were the conference buddies, and then during the rest of the conference, they had some people to talk to, and then could meet many other people. Otherwise, the conference experience can be less cool if you feel shy and isolated all the time. So that's the kind of thing Forward does. So this is one initiative. Another one is Our Ladies, which is a grassroots organization. So it doesn't come from the Our Foundation. It was created locally in San Francisco by Gabriela de Carroz a few years ago. And there was another chapter in London. And these chapters got together and created Our Ladies Global, which has helped creating many local chapters uh, since I think 2016, for instance, I co-created the Barcelona chapter in Spain, and they these chapters aim that pro- they have meetups and they provide a safe and friendly environment for women. And actually, any any person that does not identify as man, so they pro- I just provide a good experience for all these people. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that's diversity of data scientists. What about diversity of of, of users? When you're a data scientist, your user can be, um, I mean, depends on your perspective, but say, even if you're not a data scientist, you're an epidemiologist and you create a map of incidence of salmonella in a region, and you decide that the counties with the most incidence of salmonella will be red and the one with the least uh, incidence of salmonella will be green, you have what you think is a very intuitive color scale, so because red is bad and green is good, but actually this is the kind of visualization that cannot be... Uh, seen by colorblind people. One might think that because um, the majority of people are not colorblind, it's not an issue, but first, this is quite unfair to not think of all your users. You should try to um, accommodate for everyone 
that, that might want to use your visualization. And also it's interesting to see that there are tools currently, for instance, in R that help making colorblind friendly graphics with not, not much effort. So you have a package for seeing how your visualization would look like if you are colorblind. So it's, it's called Colorblinder. And if you use it, you already see that red green is not a good idea. And then you have other R packages providing color scales that are colorblind friendly. So varieties for color space, for instance. So this means that it's very easy for you to make your graphic uh, friendly to colorblind people. You just need to be aware of the issue. And this is one issue that I know of, but I guess that sometimes when I produce something, I'm not thinking of all users. And I'd like to know more about how to serve the diversity of users of data science products. That's cool. And I actually appreciate that as I, I myself am red, green, colorblind. So yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely, definitely appreciate that. Are there any other types of users that... that... Yeah, so you might have noticed by now, I'm not a uh, native English speaker, and I guess that's okay so, uh, for a lot of people inside the R community, and most of the materials in data science or R are in English. And we need efforts to accommodate for all kinds of users, even the non-native English speakers. So right, so now I'm an R user, I, I have experience with R, so I'm not uh, afraid of reading R error messages, but say when you start using R, you, R is a foreign language for you. And if English is a foreign uh, language for you, it's even more difficult. So our error messages are translated, which is great. And if you start looking at videos to learn about R, so say on Datacamp, it's great to see that Datacamp now has subtitles to help people really be able to grasp all the content without too much effort. So yeah, yeah absolutely. we should not forget that not everyone speaks English to begin yeah. with. And we're very fortunate at, at, at Datacamp in that we've actually had uh, members from different communities reach out to us and translate uh, some of our courses into into their, their, their native language. So I think um, in the early days, even our first introduction to our course uh, and intermediate R were translated into into Mandarin, so that that existed in the community, which was was beautiful to have that type of type of outreach. It's fantastic that error messages uh, can be translated into into different languages. How many languages do you know are, are, are supported in in R, for example? I actually have no idea, but I, I would say a dozen. I've actually looked at it recently because I was at a, an ecology hackathon where a group was working on translating error messages, not not into another language, but into simple English, like, like you know, the Wikipedia simple English. So we're making error messages understandable for the students. And that's why I, I looked at this page that you have of all the translation teams of error messages. I think a good dozen of languages were supported. Yeah, I was thinking on, on Twitter, most of the R conversation happened in English in the, on the AirStats hashtag, but recently two new hashtags have emerged. So one of them in Spanish, which is AirStats ES, so the same hashtag with ES at the end. And another one is AirStats FR for French. So I, I really hope that this conversation, conversations will happen in as many languages as our error messages, for instance. So a, a lot of people, I think there's a, a perceived barrier to entry for data science, thinking that it's something that only experts can do, which we're trying to break apart in a number of ways. My question for you is, what, what are the roles of education and outreach in making data science and statistics as accessible as possible for everyone? 
when you start in data science, you will need to learn things. So I guess that's why education is so important. But what's important is to really empower people with the belief that if they, that they're able to to learn these things, so not uh, tell them, hey, go and uh, go and educate yourself. So having them to get educated in a in a really friendly way. And one example I have is I said I submitted my first package to site two years ago. And really, there was th- there were things that I didn't know anything about. I, I think I didn't even know continuous integration, which is part of the guidelines of packages. And the reason why I stayed in that community and learned so much is because people were so friendly and helpful, and there really had no trouble helping me. And that's something we keep doing in our open size. So if you were not too sure about some things about package development, we can help you with that before you submit your package. So this means people feel they can learn about package development. And of course, after that, they learn about that. And what about the role of community in general in in helping people get started? I guess, for instance, if, if I think of the Aladies community, we tend to support each other a lot. Like for the Barcelona local chapter, we have these meetups where we could talk about R, but we also had a local Slack to discuss and we had an R help uh, help channel so where people could ask their question. And I guess the community part of it is that you're not, these people in this community are sort of friends, so you're not afraid to ask them questions. So you really learn together and in, in this safe environment. So it's really about being as opening and, and welcoming and I suppose have as much empathy as possible for beginners. Yeah, so, that, so this uh, idea of being uh, empathetic with, with beginners is something that was uh, made popular by Jenny Bryan, for instance. So she really uh, made, made, made this popular. And I think it's an interesting idea. So not not to think as beginners as stupid people, for instance, or as people who don't make uh, enough efforts. Although I, I'm not sure that a lot of people think, think that anyway, but really thinking of how, from this perspective and how you can document, for instance, your uh, tools so that they can understand that. Because we, we were all beginners to start with. So we've discussed a lot of different different aspects of data science techniques, methodologies, a- applications. What's one of your favorite things, techniques or methodologies for data science, something you enjoy doing? <laughs> so that's something you've mentioned previously. You said uh, that you tell uh, newcomers in, in data science that their best friends will be um, search engines so that's my favorite techniques when i have an issue i will first look uh scientific literature and i will google the issue to find what exists not because i like plagiarism or something but because i'm quite sure that i can be inspired at least by what already exists and i don't like reinventing the wheel so i like being creative but i don't like being uselessly creative so i think that's my favorite methodology looking at what already exists i love that answer because you know a lot of people come in and say extreme gradient boosting or random whatever (laughs) um or data visualization but thinking about this 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 practice of using search engines as an actual uh data science technique i i I love and and i I totally agree so we've discussed a lot about modern data science about what what it looks like on the ground today Uh, what does the future of data science look, look like to you (laughs) <laughs> so I, I guess my answer will be influenced by what I see as problems nowadays in data science. So because I, I'm interested in diversity with my friends, my involvement in our ladies, I really hope that future data science will be more diverse, like with a real diversity of data scientists and also an awareness of the diversity of the users. 
And I hope, for instance, that all, more code will be open and that more code will have been reviewed by someone, like by someone's colleague or by a formal uh, thing such as our open size. So I hope it will be more diverse and more reviewed. As one last question, um, do you have a final call to action for people who, who want to break in on, on, on data science in general? Yeah, so if you want to get involved in data science or even in data science, so your role as a data scientist you will be to bring data science to your team. So you should that's why what you should learn about uh, in priority. And I think it's important to get involved in the community, and that's also what will make it fun and enjoyable for you. And there are a lot of ways to get involved in your data science community. So I will speak of the R community because that's the one. I know the best. So you can, for instance, submit interesting things that you've read to the our weekly newsletter so that other people can read about that. You can blog about what you learn. So even as a beginner, and especially as a beginner, and even as a non-native English speaker, and especially like if you want to write in Spanish, so you should blog and report what you've learned and how you've learned about it to help people uh, on their in, on their learning journey as well. You should also meet people like not only online, but also in the real world by getting involved in your local hires group or Alice chapter. Or you could start from. So I co-founded an Alice chapter and I promise it's a very cool experience and it's really worth uh, all the efforts that you'll have to, to do. And if you want to learn more about uh, Cold quality, which will be important in your data scientist career because you will be writing a lot of code. You can volunteer to become a R package reviewer for R OpenSci or for general science software, which will make you better acquainted with best practices in writing software and writing science. Great. That's that's a, a wonderful amount of useful and practical on, on the ground advice. Mael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it was a pleasure for me too. <laughs> Thanks for joining everybody. In this episode of Data Framed, Mael told us about some of the most pressing challenges of modern public health in epidemiology and air pollution, along with how data science, statistics, and open source software tools can help us to solve them. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, in which I talk with Dave Robinson, data scientists that stack overflow about citizen data science and a future in which data literacy is a skill possessed by everybody. Yeah.